This morning's scripture comes from Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I'm sure you've had this uh, experience. It could be uh, Christmas morning, or maybe it's a, a birthday that your child's having, but you get them a gift, and you're so excited for them to open the gift and enjoy it and laugh and have a great time, and they open the gift, and then within minutes, they're in a uh, nuclear war with their sibling over it, and they're pulling, and they're scratching, and, uh, and then eventually it gets broken, and that, that results in more crying and devastation. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute. I thought long and hard on this gift. This was to be a gift. And look what it's become. When we talk about the Sabbath, oftentimes we talk about the Sabbath day in the negative, with the restrictions. What can't I do? And a lot of times it's discussed in a way that almost comes across as oppressive. And, and I imagine from God's perspective that he is thinking, I, I gave my people this gift of the Sabbath. I just want them to see it that way and enjoy it that way. And so this morning we're going to take the fourth commandment about the Sabbath day. And what I want you to see by the end of this is the amazing gift that it is that God has given us. The question becomes, how do we enjoy God's gift? If you look at verse 8, there's a command there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. A couple points here. One, remember the Sabbath day doesn't mean just have cognitive recognition of it. That means to actively memorialize it. It's speaking of action there, that there's action involved in remembering the Sabbath. And then the second half, to keep it holy, means to keep it set apart. Verse 10, to the Lord your God. Right? So we're talking about a day here, a Sabbath day that's a gift to you from God that involves action and it's a day that's set apart. Now, how do you enjoy God's gift of the Sabbath? First, the Sabbath is rest from toilsome work. Look at verse 10. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And then verse 11 goes on to connect Sabbath to creation. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. God rested after his creation, and he asks us to rest after ours, that we would imitate him. And so to not rest is to, is to violate our design, to violate the way we're made. To overwork or underwork will eventually result in breakdown. That's the connection to creation because we're designed a certain way. 
No different than if you take a piece of equipment or a device and you use it not according to its design, it's not going to last long. That's what's being spoken of here. Now, in between God's uh, creation and rest in Genesis 2 and his command in Exodus 20 to the people at Mount Sinai about the Sabbath day and to rest one day out of seven, there's a major event that happens in between. And that is Genesis 3, the fall. And because of man's rebellion in Genesis 3, God curses the ground. There's a curse that's put on Adam, Eve, the ground, the earth, the world. And I want to I read just part of that out of Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. Listen to this. Cursed is the ground because of you, because of the rebellion of man. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face or by the toil. You shall eat bread. So interesting, in Genesis 1 and 2, you've got pleasurable, toil-free work that had a rhythm of rest to it. And the rest there was not so much because of exhaustion. The rest there was to imitate God in that after you create, you rest, you enjoy what you've created. That's what God did. He enjoyed what he created. But then Genesis 3 hits, and the curse comes, and now work is toilsome. It's hard. There's burden. There's frustration. And so now God prescribes the Sabbath day, same Sabbath, rest, rhythm of rest, but for another reason, that is physical rest from the curse. To be able to unplug from the toil of work. And you all know this well. Romans 8, we'll take that for example. Romans 8 describes creation and how creation right, longs to be restored, longs to be free from the bondage to corruption, that it's been put under futility. That's, just the, that's Genesis 3. That's the fall. That even creation itself is longing for freedom because it feels the burden. It feels the toil. And that explains what we see in the Old Testament, these Sabbath days or rhythms of rest that God would give. And they came in, in circles of seven. You had the, every seventh day, there was to be rest. And by the word, the word Sabbath in the Hebrew means to cease. That's what it means, to cease. So every seventh day, you were to cease and experience freedom from the toil of work. And then every seventh year, the land would actually rest. You couldn't plow or plant the fields because the land literally received a year or, or received rest. And then every seven of seven years was the year of Jubilee, which that was the 50th year. And that was the land rested for a year. You couldn't plow it. You couldn't plant it. Debts were canceled. But you see what God was doing, recognizing the curse. He was giving his creation rest from the toil and the burden of doing work in a fallen and a broken world. Now, you all know this well. I mean, this past week. At work, how many times did you say, why is this so hard? Why does it happen this way? Why won't so-and-so call me back? Why did this vendor not respond to me, right? Why did the copy machine break down right before that important meeting? Why did the internet go down on that conference call that was just so critical, right? I mean, it didn't work in a fallen and broken world is frustrating, it's burdensome. Or if you work in construction, 
right? And you, do, you work hard all day, and that night a nasty storm comes in and washes out what you did the day before, and you go back and you're having to redo it. What's going on there? That is the frustration, the burden of work in a fallen and a broken world that, has, that is not free from the curse yet of the fall. Or if you are a landscaper and you're having to maintain this yard that disease has gotten into, right? That, that's the fall. That's frustrating, right? We all understand what work is like in a fallen and broken world and the frustrations that come with it. And God says, I understand that and I'm giving you a rest. One day out of seven, I want you to unplug from it and have physical rest from that burden that is tied to the curse because I want you to taste what's coming, to unplug from the burden, from the frustration. God gives you a day to experience freedom from the frustrations of your vocation, that the Sabbath is rest from toilsome work. Second, the Sabbath is rest from worldly patterns. So Exodus 20 connects Sabbath to creation. Deuteronomy 5 connects Sabbath to redemption. And I want to read you that out of Deuteronomy 5. Same kind of language, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On it you shall not do any work. Why? Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. What were God's people brought out from? From awful slavery where they did not experience rest. There was no such thing as a Sabbath rest one day out of seven in Egypt. In fact, I want to read you the account in Exodus 5, a picture of what God's people were under, the system, the, the cultural system of oppression that they were under. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh to ask Pharaoh to let God's people go. Okay? And here's, here's Pharaoh's response in verse 4 of Exodus 5. Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Wow, Pharaoh actually understood the fall. Get back to your burdens. Work was, was burdensome. It goes on though. Then Pharaoh tells his taskmasters and the foremen in verse 7, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. They would actually give them the straw to make the bricks. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Pharaoh says they're lazy. That's why you want them to, to be let go, so they can go worship God. It's not about worshiping God. They're lazy. Get them back to work, right? So he says, you're going to produce the same number of bricks with less straw. In other words, he just ramps up the system of oppression on God's people. And what, you, what I want you to see here is that they were in a culture in Egypt that was about production and commodity. God's people were a commodity that achieved a result. And so there, it was just laid on them more and more to get this result. And it wore them down. And so what did God do? He freed them through the 10 plagues, through the Red Sea crossing. He freed them from that culture that was oppressing them and said, now I want you to rest one day out of seven. I want you to experience Sabbath because work in this fallen and broken world is hard. And I'm going to give you a day where you unplug from that. So what I want you to see here is that the gift of Sabbath rest 
here in Deuteronomy 5 is, is not tied to um, rest from the, the toil of work because of the curse. What we see here is that rest is tied to freedom from cultural pressures and worldly patterns that they were under in Egypt. For 400 years, God, God's people lived in a culture that worshiped commodity and that worshiped productivity. And so what we see in that culture is that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that culture, it was an attack on the design of humanity. It was an attack on the image of God to treat the image of God as a commodity to produce a result. That that's what was going on and that's what they were freed from. And what I want you to see is that the world we live in is not much different. That just like there was a culture or a system or a worldly pattern of oppression, that we too live in a culture that has patterns and pressures that do the same thing. Now, let me, let me give you a couple examples. And th- this, is, this flows out of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Right? You're free from the patterns of this world, but what are those patterns that can tend to, that can tend to enslave? Let me take work, for example. Now, before I speak about work, let me acknowledge in this room that there are some of you that work on Sundays. And you do it out of a work of necessity to put food on the table, roof over your head. So what I'm about to say is not, I'm not speaking it to you. Because Jesus' disciples picked, what, grain on the Sabbath? Jesus healed on the Sabbath. We're told to take the ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath. Right? There are works of necessity and mercy that happen on the Sabbath. So if you are working and it's to put food on your table, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. What I am going to speak of, though, is work on the Sabbath that is your choice to get ahead or to produce more, right? You say, wow, I've got X more hours on Sunday that I can produce to either make more money or to get ahead or to get a promotion, whatever it may be. And what I want you to realize is that there is a cultural system because our culture, right, here in the United States is one of production and commodity and that you live in that and that you work in the midst of that. And to understand that that is pressing in on you And when you're working on a Sunday because you need that extra time for you to think and consider, wow, I I may be enslaved to that very cultural system and pressure on me. And that's why I'm working. In fact, it's fair to say that if, if you're unable to rest, and you're unable to receive God's gift of the Sabbath, then you're enslaved to something regarding work. Might be money, status, reputation, whatever it is, something is driving that. I'll speak to the college students for a second. If you're a college student here, uh, some of you work part-time, but for you, your work is school, tests, studying, all of that. You can fall prey to the same kind of cultural pressure and worldly pattern, which says, wow, I've got Sunday afternoon, I've got a few more hours to study harder to get that A, and I need that A because if I don't get that A, I'll be thought less of. I need that A to prove myself, to justify myself, to make my parents justify spending the money on me for school, whatever it may be. 
And again, you can be a college student and be enslaved. That's really an enslavement that is your own heart's desire to justify yourself. I had a buddy in grad school. He would, he wouldn't study on Sunday afternoons. He would wait until the sun went down. He'd study at night, but he wouldn't study on Sunday afternoons because he wanted to honor God's gift, and he wanted to receive God's gift of this rest from the toil of work, even if it was studying college. Let me shift to another area of cultural pressure that I've seen recently in the last decade escalate, and even recently, and that is the area of youth sports. Let me speak into this. We're in a culture now where playing school ball, if you want to succeed and move on and play in college, doesn't cut it anymore. Right? You have travel teams, you have AAU, and, and, and if you want to look by college recruits, they don't come to schools anymore. They come to these traveling tournaments. They come to the AAU tournaments. Right? And so to get a look or to get better or to potentially play in college, you, you get onto a traveling team, AAU team. Nothing wrong with that okay? in and of itself. But the problem is a lot of these traveling teams and a lot of these AAU teams the tournaments are on Sundays now. My brother in Tennessee is facing this. His nine-year-old plays baseball, loves to play baseball. Put him on a traveling team. And now they're wrestling with multiple times a month, at least twice a month, right? Either worship or tournament. And they're, they're, they're grappling with that. And, and what I want, if that's you, what I want you to see is this cultural system, this pressure that is pushing in to say you need this, even if it means foregoing the Lord's day and worship. And so here's what I wanna ask you, right? And I wanna be real clear, I'm not coming down on traveling teams, on AAU, but I am asking you to think about this when it comes to youth sports, because it's only gonna get worse in our culture. And if you haven't experienced it, you're gonna experience it. What's the motive behind putting your child on one of these teams? You have to ask that question. There could be several motives. One could be, we don't have any money and I'm not gonna be able to afford college. And so I need to get a scholarship for my child. And so I'm gonna put them on one of these teams. That could be driving it. But you have to ask at what expense to my child, right? The second could be, you, you could, could be vicariously living through the success of your child in sports. Meaning that you never gained the reputation that you wanted when you played, and so through your child, treating them kind of as a commodity, I'm gonna gain the reputation that I never had, but always wanted, that could be. You could have the motivation to say, you know what, my child just loves the sport, loves the sport, and I want them to succeed. The question then you have to ask yourself is, what, what is success, right? All right, here's what I'm getting at with this. I'm not speaking of an event here and there on a Sunday. What I'm speaking of is the rhythm of life. And when, when a youth sports culture starts to impose on the rhythm of life when it comes to the Lord's Day and the Sabbath, then it's a problem. When my child twice a month, half a year is out of worship because of this. And so what I'm asking you to do is to at least think proactively about it and think about it in terms of this rhythm. Just like God's people were rescued out of Egypt and out of that oppression in Egypt and that cultural system, 
so too Jesus Christ has rescued you, freed you out of any cultural system or cultural pressure that bears down on you. And what Jesus says is you're free. You don't have to be the CEO at your work. You don't have to make this much money. Uh, Your child doesn't have to be in this traveling team to succeed. Listen, God doesn't operate or he's not bound to a cultural system. He's above that. God wants your child to get a scholarship in a sport. He's going to do it. And school, school ball may just be enough. In other words, God's above that, to trust him for that. And to not operate according to the patterns of the world. And to see God's gift of the Sabbath and say, I'm giving you rest from that from the treadmill that just goes over and over. How do you enjoy God's gift on the Sabbath day? You rest from toilsome work. Second, you rest from cultural pressures and worldly patterns that sow themselves into the world that aren't necessarily, uh, that are opposed to God. And finally, you rest in the finished work of Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 speak of this finished work of Christ. Listen to it. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Shadow and substance, even in reference to the Sabbath. I shared this illustration uh, a while back, but I think it really grasps this concept that Paul's talking about here of shadow and substance. My daughter and I, this was several years ago uh, when probably she was four years old or so. We used to play this game in the backyard. Right before bed when it was dark, I would go out, we had a spotlight on our house, and I would stand in front of the spotlight. And, And I'm tall, but the shadow that this spotlight cast in my backyard was enormous. From the house all the way back to the fence, this giant. And my daughter would get out there, and I would run back and forth. And so this massive shadow start moving back and forth across the backyard. And she would chase it, and she'd try to step on it, and she would laugh, and we would have a ball doing it. Now, I want you to imagine if somehow my shadow could move back and forth across the yard without me there. She would have no interest in playing that game. She loved chasing the shadow because the shadow was connected to me. And as she chased that shadow, she was delighting in me because it was me who was casting that shadow on the backyard. Jesus Christ casts his shadow on the Sabbath day. And every activity on the Lord's day, therefore, is to be connected by faith to the person of Christ. That that's how you receive the benefits of the Sabbath day. It's not just activities. It's the Christ who's at the center of them. It's the same thing with the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take this morning. Drinking the cup and eating the bread by itself doesn't gain you the grace poured out from God. It's, It's taking the cup and taking the bread united with faith upon which the the, the waterfall of God's grace opens up. And so Jesus Christ casts his shadow on the Lord's day, and that he's the substance of it. He's at the center of it. And in fact, unless Christ is at the center of the Sabbath, you'll have no hope 
of unplugging from your work. Because apart from Christ, you don't have the power to free yourself from those things and those systems and those people that say, you need me to prove yourself. Right? You're, whether you're enslaved to money or power or reputation or whatever it may be, you don't have the power to get free from those. You won't be able to rest from them on Sunday. You won't be able to set your work down unless Christ is at the center. And Christ declares your freedom and says, you don't need that to justify yourself. You need me. And Christ is the one that can set you free so that you can actually rest. Remember what Jesus said right before he breathed his last on the cross? He said, it is finished. And then he rose from the dead three days later. And he inaugurated his kingdom And when he rose from the dead on what the Gospels call that first day of the week, the Sabbath shifted. Sabbath in the Old Testament was celebrated on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. When Jesus rose from the dead, it shifted to the first day of the week to Sunday, Resurrection Day. Jesus rising from the dead and inaugurating his kingdom. And so we celebrate what is now called the Lord's Day. When the Apostle John received his revelation that he wrote in the book of Revelation in your Bible, it says in chapter 1 of Revelation this, I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That this is the Lord's day. That that is Sabbath. And it's the first day of the week. Now that's a shift for most of us. Most of us think of Monday as the first day of the week. Right? And we dread it. Because that means we start work again for the week. Monday's not the first day of the week. Sunday is. The Lord's day is the first day of the week, and it is the day that casts its shadow on the rest of the week, the remaining six days. And so the question is, what do you, what do you orient your week around? Is it around the football game on Saturday? football game on Sunday, Uh, recreational outing on the weekend, children's school schedule. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying you can't look forward to a football game on the weekend or to a weekend away or some outing that you have that you're looking forward to. That's not what I'm asking. What I am asking is in the rhythm of your life, is your week oriented around the Lord's day and everything that it involves. It starts here in worship on Sunday morning because in Sunday morning worship, Jesus announces to you that he has come, that he is king and the kingdom's here. And then the rest of the day, right? Whether it's spent in fellowship with God's people, whether it's spent taking a nap, which is appropriate because Sabbath is rest from the physical toil of work or whether it's reading the scriptures, or whether it's playing with your children in the yard, and in other words, enjoying that day. But does this Lord's Day, is it at the center of your week? Is it the day that casts its shadow on everything else that you'll experience throughout the week? You know, Sunday worship, Lord's Day, is a rehearsal and a foretaste of what's to come. 
That's what this is. It's a foretaste of what's to come. Hebrews chapter 4 explains that. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, and that's speaking of if Joshua had given them rest when he took them across the Jordan into the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The promised land wasn't the ultimate rest. It was pointing to ultimate rest. Ultimate rest is the new heavens and the new earth of which Jesus is king and Jesus is on his throne. And so the, the, the Lord's day is a, a rehearsal, a foretaste of what's to come. That when you, when you keep Sabbath, right, verse 8, and set it apart to the Lord your God, that you become a future-oriented person, that you have a forward lean to what's coming, what God is bringing. Think about Thanksgiving when uh, maybe it's your parents or whoever's cooking the turkey, and they put it in the oven, and they bake it. It's been baking almost all day long, and then, you know, as it gets towards evening or whenever you're going to have your feast— whoever's cooking it says, hey, can I, can I cut you a little piece of turkey? I just want you to taste. Tell me if it's tasting good. And they open the oven, they cut you a little piece, and they give it to you, and you taste it. And it's amazing. And you go, I cannot wait two hours from now to feast on this. And then an hour before they pull it out, they, they say, hey, I need you to taste it again. I need you to make sure it's still moist. And they cut you a piece, and they give it to you, and you taste it, and you go, I can't wait for the feast. Do you know that the Bible describes the return of Jesus Christ and the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth as a wedding feast? We sang about it this morning. That there is what the scriptures call a marriage supper of the Lamb when we will feast with Jesus. And God says, I want to give you a foretaste of that. And I'm going to call it the Lord's Day. When you can cease Rest from the toil of work and from the worldly pressures and the cultural patterns that are pressing in on you. And interesting, in the Old Testament, all of the Sabbath festivals, whether it was a seventh day or a seventh year or Jubilee, they were all marked by feasting, not fasting. And they were marked by abundance, not deprival. And so the Lord's day is to be a, a day of feasting and a day of celebrating with God's people, right? Just tasting, a little taste of what's to come. When, once and for all, there will be no more toil and burden with work and no more worldly patterns and cultural pressures that are pressing in and trying to, to take you away from God. That's what the Sabbath is. That's what the Lord day, Lord's Day is. God says, it's a gift. Will you enjoy it? Let's pray. Father, thank you that, you that you understand the brokenness of your world. You understand what happened in Genesis 3. That you understand what it is to feel the burden and the frustration of doing work in a broken and fallen world. And thank you that you give us a gift called the Sabbath, called the Lord's Day where you ask us graciously to cease from the toil of work, 
from the worldly patterns that press in on us all week long and to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ that is a foretaste. Father, this morning we get to enjoy the Lord's Supper, which is a tangible foretaste on this Lord's day. And would you take these common elements of of juice and bread, and would you use them for uncommon purposes? And that is that your spirit through them and through the faith of your people would would pour out grace, and that we would taste now the kingdom that is coming. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.